Hello and welcome to this special episode of the CAS Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm Julian Evans-Pritchard, the head of China Economics, and in this episode, we're talking global trade, China's role in supply chains, and the future of globalization. I'm pleased to say I'm joined by Stephen Altman. Steve is a senior research scholar at NYU's Stern School of Business, as well as director of the DHL Initiative on Globalization. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. You recently co-authored the DHL Global Connectedness Index, which is an in-depth study of international flows, sort of like a report card for globalization, if you will. The latest edition was published last month, and it draws in part on our work here at Capital Economics on global economic fracturing. In particular, your analysis made use of our classification for the geopolitical alignment of different countries relative to China and the U.S., Now, that's something that we can discuss in more detail later, but I wanted to start just by asking for the big picture view. What's your take on the current health of globalization? Sure. So I think if if we look at the data up through 2021, 2022, globalization has proven far more resilient than many presumed. I think our latest report actually really pushes back quite strongly against this idea that war in Ukraine, the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, on the heels of a variety of other shocks running from Brexit to the US-China trade war, have put globalization into reverse. Uh, Our report is kind of unique in that we look across trade capital information and people flows, and we look at both the size of the flows and their geography. And what we see is that at least yet, there's no broad shift from international to domestic activity. So we aren't seeing sort of a retreat toward national self-sufficiency, nor are we seeing a geographic retreat in globalization. So if we look at the average distance that's traversed by trade, capital, information, and people flows, that has actually tended to increase, not to decrease. So so we we have, I think, actually quite strong evidence against the idea of a shift from globalization to deglobalization. You mentioned just now that your global connectedness index captures four types of flows, trade, capital, people and information. Of these, the first three appear to have been relatively stagnant over the past decades. Um, and most of the improvement seems to be coming from information flows. I think it's really valuable to have extended the conventional definition of globalization beyond just areas like trade. But I'm wondering what to make of the fact that these rapidly increasing global information flows haven't prevented other forms of globalization from stalling. So. We look at it as a multifaceted phenomenon. Certainly, there's a reinforcing pattern across the different types of flows. So information flows help to facilitate trade flows, help to facilitate capital flows. When people move between borders, that facilitates different types of flows. But the general pattern, as you mentioned, has been one where, if I kind of expand upon it a little bit, if we look before the 2008 global financial crisis, we were seeing strong growth across all four categories of flows, and they were growing pretty steadily. So Globalization was advancing in a pretty steady way across all of its different aspects. Then over the last decade, as you look at the period between the global financial crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic, we were no longer setting new records in terms of globalization of trader capital flows. So those certainly slowed down. They also became more volatile. And then as you, as you indicated, the part that had the biggest contributor to increasing the integration of, of markets was the growth of international information flows. People flows were continuing to grow up to the period of the pandemic, but you know, at a more modest pace. So, so I would essentially contrast it to say that we didn't see a retreat from globalization with respect to trade or capital flows, 
But you know, those were no longer setting new records. What was powering globalization forward in the period up to the COVID-19 pandemic was information and people flows. Then we went through a whole series of shocks, but we then got to a period where we are right now, where trade, capital, and information flows are all above the pre-pandemic levels and people flows are recovering strongly. So we, we went through a series of shocks, but we've actually come back quite strongly in the areas that were of trade and capital flows. And the people flows, of course, are taking longer, but there's a clear recovery underway. The latest forecasts would put us in terms of international travel, just about five to 20% below the pre-pandemic level this year. And in some regions actually already back above the pre-pandemic level. So I think it's, it's fair to, to conclude that clearly there's not much evidence of deglobalization. I guess whether or not globalization has continued to advance, as you say, depends on which area you focus on. But one finding that did come across in your report is even if there hasn't been any deglobalization overall, there has still been some degree of decoupling between China and the US in particular. Maybe you can walk us through that. This year, this is a kind of a new feature that we've introduced is this analysis of decoupling and then of geoeconomic fragmentation, which we'll probably get to a bit later on. So the decoupling pattern was actually pretty consistent across types of flows. So we looked at this in terms of merchandise trade, in terms of announced greenfield foreign direct investment, announced M&A transactions, portfolio equity stocks, scientific research collaboration, migration, as well as international travel. And what we saw is that across most of these areas, China and the U.S. have both reduced the percentage of their flows that are happening with the other. So since 2016, there's a clear pattern of what many people would call a U.S.-China decoupling. On average, you know, if you look at it in terms of the percent change, it's about a 20% decline in the share of the flows that are with each of those countries' geopolitical rivals. But if you look at it just in terms of percentage points, that's a, a much smaller change looked at in that way. So, for example, the share of the U.S. flows on average across all of those categories that involve China declined from 9.3% in 2016 to 7.3%. Percentage change terms as of 2022 are the most recent year available. So in percentage terms, that's a pretty substantial. In the percentage points, it's not that much. Similarly, the share of China's flows involving the U.S., fell from 17.8% to 14.3%, 20% drop relative to 2016, but only three and a half percentage points. What I would do to kind of put that into context is to mention that even after that, the US and China are still connected by larger flows than any other pair of countries that doesn't share a common border. So this is very much still a partial decoupling. But you know, this is clear evidence that we weren't seeing a few years ago that there really is a pattern of decoupling going on. And, and I guess if it's useful, I might just toss in one other concept here, which is that there's a lot of other analysis that gets done on this topic of decoupling to try to separate out what could be geopolitically driven decoupling versus just normal shifts in patterns of, of international flows, changes in the shares of flows around the world. What we do is we compare the changes in patterns of flows between the U.S. and China specifically with patterns of flows for the rest of the world. And what we see is that in the areas of trade, scientific research collaboration, and people flows, these decoupling trends between the U.S. and China are not broadly matched in changing shares of flows between other parts of the world. So there's a pretty good reason to suspect that what's been going on between the U.S. and China 
in those areas is geopolitically driven. The evidence on that is actually less clear in the area of capital flows. Some of what seems to be going on are just some of the underlying changes in patterns of capital flows that sometimes look like decoupling, but it's less clear that that some of that is geopolitically driven. So do you think that's just because we've seen greater trade barriers imposed on goods trade than we have on capital flows? Just thinking in terms of the Trump trade tariffs, for example, whereas on capital flows, we haven't seen nearly as as significant restrictions. Yeah, I think a part of it is that. I think a part of it is also, from the standpoint of measurement, the fact that capital flows are much more volatile. So it's harder to make a clear conclusion, you know, this is geopolitically driven versus it isn't. As well as the fact that we've tended to see, if you look at, let's say, announced greenfield investment, the share of that going into China has been declining actually for quite a long time. And so you see that the share of the U.S. investment going into China has declined over the last few years, but that actually continues a longer term trend. And it's a trend that is matched by the share of the rest of the world's investment in announced greenfield FDI going into China. And so when you look at that, you'd say, okay, well, you know, there is a decline in the percentage of the investments that are being announced by U.S.-based firms that are in China, but it's not quite as clear that that reflects the geopolitical relevance because the trend extends back uh, well before the recent escalation of tensions, and it appears to be a global pattern, perhaps just that you know, this this wave of investment that happened after China joined the WTO gradually worked its course. And in your report, you extended your analysis of decoupling, not just to US and China themselves, but also to US allies and Chinese allies. And that's where our classification came into play. So for listeners who aren't familiar, a year or so ago, we created a database of pretty much every major economy in the world where we classified them based on a range of factors, such as their voting patterns at the UN, their economic ties with the US and China, uh, and various various other factors just to work out where they sit in geopolitical terms relative to the US and China. And so we had a few different camps. We had the US and its close allies, China and its close allies, but also countries that were more neutral. And you use those classifications to do some analysis on decoupling on a broader level. What were your findings? Sure. And you know, we really appreciated the use of those classifications. They were very, very useful because the work by Capital Economics draws on a much wider variety of factors than really what I've seen basically anywhere else. So we're really pleased to use that as an input in our analysis. What we found is that you know, at least through the current period, this decoupling pattern between the US and China has not led to a similar fracturing of the world economy into rival blocks. So that's certainly a possibility going forward. And I know the work by Capital Economics lays out a a whole variety of of arguments on why we may see that moving forward. But I think it's really important to draw a baseline and to start to measure these patterns. And what we found is that there was not a consistent pattern like we saw for the U.S. and China of the close allies of the U.S. and China reducing the share of their flows that are with the geopolitical rival and its close allies. So for example, if we look at the share of imports by US close allies coming from China and its close allies, that's actually increased slightly in contrast to the fact that the US is drawing less of its imports from China. So US allies have not reduced the share of their imports overall 
coming from China. Similarly, the U.S. is doing less scientific research collaboration with China as a share of its total scientific research collaboration. We don't see a similar decline for the U.S. close allies. And I should mention, for our analysis, we simply focused on the countries that are designated as close allies uh, in your work, because we felt that you know, if there's going to be a geopolitically driven shift in patterns of flows, that's more likely to happen first among the close allies. So the, the other countries, we treated them all as unaligned if they weren't designated as close allies. So for close allies, you know, there are some declines, but it's not the same kind of a clear, substantial and consistent pattern as we saw for the US and China themselves. I think it's a really helpful baseline, actually. I do think going forward, there's obviously a risk that we could see greater fragmentation between the allies as well. I mean, obviously, a number of US allies are now coming under greater pressure to follow the US in certain areas, export controls on semiconductor machinery being an obvious one recently. And certainly one of our kind of takeaways from the work that we've done is that it, it, the risk is that it becomes increasingly hard for allies not to choose sides. Of course, everybody would rather not choose sides, but if this geopolitical competition continues to intensify, then that could become increasingly difficult. I want to come back to the point about US-China decoupling, because it raises an obvious question. If the US is reducing its imports from China and China's reducing its imports from the US, then which countries are taking their place? Where are they turning to instead? And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, so what we've seen thus far, the largest growth has been to shifts from China to alternative suppliers in Southeast Asia. So we see more growth of the flows from the ASEAN region. If we look at patterns of investment and new announcements, from the US perspective, we're certainly seeing a lot of interest in growing supply chains in Mexico. If that really starts to accelerate to a substantial extent, that's going to start to affect our average distance measures. So we haven't seen, for example, the U.S. start to import over substantially shorter distances, uh, but that's something that we're going to be continuing to monitor. So one of our key questions is, are we seeing shifts from globalization to regionalization? And we say in this report at the global level, not yet, but it's certainly one of the possibilities that, that could come out of these shifts. I think I agree that we're not going to see deglobalization as a result of rising geopolitical ties. We're more likely to see shifts in supply chains to different countries. And I think, as you mentioned in your report, the, the case for globalized supply chains is still extremely strong. There are still substantial benefits of locating production overseas, but due to geopolitical constraints that the choice destination might differ. As you say, whether or not that results in regionalization partly depends on where you choose to shift production to. And so far, we've been seeing the same thing as you. Most of the production in China, to the extent that it has shifted out the country, has moved to ASEAN, which is obviously also very far from the US. And so it's not showing up on your measures of average distance of trade, but I think it still is having an impact on, on supply chains. I want to come back to the point about the very robust recovery in global trade during the pandemic. Because although I agree with your argument that actually it shows how resilient globalized supply chains are, and they did a remarkably good job at coping with the surges in demand for certain products, I do have some doubts about how durable that jump in trade will be over the medium term. Certainly our view is that a lot of that increase in trade 
reflects shifts in global consumption patterns caused by the pandemic. So a lot of households were not able to spend as much as they normally would on services. And so they devoted a greater share of their income to goods. And as a result, the share of goods trading global GDP rose. But I do wonder whether as those pandemic distortions fade, we might not see outright declines in global trade over the next couple of years. And whether those pandemic distortions haven't masked a lot of the underlying shifts in supply chains and, and strains on globalization as a result of geopolitics. Um, so I wonder just, you know, whether you have any thoughts on that. Sure. So, you know, definitely I would agree with the take that the unusually strong rebound of trade in goods during the pandemic was driven by unique factors. Most importantly, the shift in demand from services to goods. You know, I, I think back to late 2021 when we were seeing these headlines, you can see on one headline says everything is out of stock. The other one says that U.S. consumer spending has reached a record level. And one of the keys to that was imports. <laughs> and so the strong rebound of world trade was driven in substantial part by the shift in demand from services to goods, which is unwinding. And so that's one of the factors that contributes along with slower economic growth in the face of higher interest rates to slower trade growth. And so we did see at the end of 2022, a slowdown in merchandise trade growth and the forecasts for this year, in particular for 2023, call for slower trade growth. You know, so if I look, for example, at the new IMF outlook that just came out, or, or we have the new forecast from the WTO, all of these forecasts would point to slightly below average trade growth for goods in 2023 before a rebound to roughly normal trade growth rates in 2024, depending on what your definition of normal is. And so the way I would, the way I would look at that is that I don't see any signs you're know, looking kind of beyond the medium term that we're likely to see trade grow significantly slower than GDP. Nor do I think that we have the ingredients for trade to be growing, you know, twice as fast as GDP as it tended to do early in the century. So I don't think we are on track for any kind of a big retreat from international trade. The next couple of years, I wouldn't be surprised to see somewhat slower than average trade growth. And I guess a related question is, you know, this probably the hardest question, presumably you'll be continuing to publish these reports in future. You know, I'm wondering what they will look like in a few years time whether you have any opinions on the sort of direction of travel in terms of globalization, uh, and also whether there's any possibility that we could get a kind of renewed pickup in globalization or in the other direction, maybe even a period of deglobalization. Let me try to put some boundaries around it and then talk about the you know, possibilities for acceleration or deceleration. And in this context, I find it really helpful to fall back on the work of my longtime mentor, Pankaj Gamwad, who was the original lead author of this DHL Global Connectedness Index. I started collaborating with him on this particular project back in 2011. And one of his key insights is that the world has for a long time been partially globalized, what he calls semi-globalized, and that that actually leads us to see a lot of stability behind a lot of the change that tends to get a lot of focus. And so Pankaj actually proposes two laws of globalization that he would argue are not going to change even for decades going forward. The first one relates to the first dimension of our index, which is the amount of international relative to domestic activity. And what he would emphasize here is that the amount of flows that cross national borders is too big to ignore. It has significant economic implications 
but it's much smaller than the amount of activity that happens within national borders. So the world economy is still primarily domestic, but international flows are still big enough to matter. At the same time, if we then pivot and look across the flows that really do cross national borders, even though they're smaller than many would presume them to be when we compare actual versus you know, perceived levels on survey, international flows tend to be constrained substantially by geographic distance, cultural differences, geopolitical tensions. That's really nothing new. International flows have always been shaped by these kinds of limitations. And so about half of all of the flows already happen within roughly continent-sized regions. Regionalization is already a reality. So is friendshoring. You know, in fact, it comes through in the work by Capital Economics that if we look at the trade of countries that are in the Western Bloc or the, the U.S.-aligned Bloc, as I think you would say, the large majority of that is already within the, the Bloc. So if you think of the world as partially globalized and already largely influenced by the effects of borders, by the cultural, administrative, and geographic differences between countries, all of that is going to continue. We're not going to get to a flat world where borders and distance aren't going to matter, nor are we going to see a retreat to a deglobalized world where you could basically think of all of the countries as self-contained national economies. We're always going to be somewhere in between, and we can move a little bit more toward the globalized direction. We can move a little bit away from it in various ways, whether it means geopolitical distance becomes more important or geographic distance becomes more important or borders become a little bit more important. All of those things can change, but my expectation is that the amount of change isn't going to change the fundamental strategic calculus that companies have to deal with as they think in, in my field, global strategy for corporations. You're still going to have to be paying attention to international and domestic market developments and if you understand the effects of distance and differences and how those things are changing, that's what gives you the ingredients to develop a strategy. In terms of drivers for change, acceleration, deceleration, over the short term, in terms of the growth of international flows, I think the most important thing is macroeconomic conditions. When we see periods of strong growth, that's when companies tend to broaden their horizons, do more international investment, do more international trade. In periods like we're seeing now with slower growth, that's when we tend to see more of a, of a narrowing of the focus. So macroeconomic growth certainly matters. One piece from a supply chain perspective that I'll just throw out there, because I haven't really seen this emphasized very much, is that to the extent that we see shifts from China to other countries, that in large part is likely to imply shifts from a country that has over time built up quite an extensive domestic supply base to countries that would actually rely more on imported inputs, imported components, intermediate goods, and so on. And so it's less clear to me that as some argue, a shift away from reliance on China is as much of a drag on trade growth as some presume, because you might actually see a pickup in the fine slicing of supply chains. If I look at the, you know, the downside risks, we are seeing a substantially less favorable public policy environment for the growth of globalization. So we do see, according to the kinds of measures that we track, you know, there is increased trade protectionism. There's more scrutiny of foreign investments on national security grounds. We haven't even talked about yet the growing regulation of international data flows. That's an area where countries are adopting very different approaches to regulating data flows. It'll be interesting to see how that influences the informational aspect of globalization as well as others. And we're seeing substantial threats to international institutions, such as the WTO. So it's a less favorable policy environment as yet.
globalization has proven resilient through those challenges. But uh, you know, my take is that we shouldn't presume that that resilience will necessarily continue. This is a time that you know, companies, leaders, countries that benefit from globalization would be well advised to try to fortify some of these foundations for the flows that benefit them. And then in terms of the biggest downside risk, I think it's one that is also highlighted in your publications, and that's um, the threat of active conflict between the US and China, or more broadly between these blocks. You know, as long as we don't have that, I think everything points toward gradual shifts. But as we saw in the case of flows between Russia and the West after the invasion of Ukraine, unfortunately, sometimes you can have a sudden break. So that would be, in my view, not the most likely scenario. And so it's not the scenario that we should all be planning for, but prudent companies, particularly in industries that are more vulnerable to it, should factor this into risk management approaches. I mean, that's a yeah, really helpful framing. I agree that the most likely outcome is a fairly benign form of fracturing that doesn't affect the level of globalization too much. And you made a good point about the possibility of sort of vertically integrated supply chains in China shifting across multiple Southeast Asian countries could actually increase cross-border trade, which I think is a is a really good one. And another point that you made, which I think is very important, is that, as you say, trade is already very regionalized. So to the extent that long distance trade flows between China and the West are severed, uh, they may not cause as much damage, particularly to to the West as many fear, given that the actually US and Europe are not particularly reliant on trade with China. In the other direction, that reliance is obviously a bit higher, given that most of China's major trade partners are quite far away and not aligned geopolitically with China. So I think it is a bigger problem uh, for China than it is for the US and its allies. Well, I think that's about all the, the time that we have. Thanks for joining me for this discussion. Uh, we'll link to Steve's report on our podcast page, where you also find our mapping, decoupling analysis and other key work on the outlook for global flows in the age of heightened geopolitical tension. All of our insight can be found on our website, capitaleconomics.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. But until next time, goodbye.